the Missional Life Podcast, inspiring kingdom-minded believers around the world to live the mission of God in their lives. All right, welcome back, listeners, to the Missional Life Podcast. Today we have Sahar Kamrani, the president of One Heart, the ministry in Athens, Greece, that's doing medical care, shelter, and practical assistance for refugees that are from the Middle East there in Athens. Sahar, welcome to the show. Thanks. <laughs> Sahar, let's just get right into it. You grew up in Iran, an Islamic republic that aggressively tries to put down Christianity. And your story about coming to know Jesus is nothing short of miraculous. Can you tell us some of that journey? Yes, um, it's, it's, it, sounds, it seems like a long time ago. It's almost 21 years ago that uh, it all happened. But uh, as I was raised in an Islamic Republic, as you guys know, that it's a country that is uh, not only uh, that you're born Muslims, but the whole government is run by Islamic laws. And uh, it has all the laws that it doesn't allow anybody to talk about Christianity or whatsoever in Iran. And if you do, you risk your life. And, uh, and everybody who is born in uh, Muslim in Iran is supposed to stay Muslim. And if they turn around and become any other faith, they are, uh, they're, they're subjected that they could be killed anywhere in, in Iran. Any Muslims, uh, responsibility is to make end of that life so but uh to say that uh i even though i was raised in a muslim country i was uh, never raised in a fanatic family and uh my family were internationals because from the young age my grandparents were traveling back and forth between america and iran and uh, I have uh, aunts in Norway, all around the world, I have a family member that they stayed. So as a result, our family was kind of international family. We were open to talk about things or be free about making decisions and decide what, what we want to believe and how we want to as a part of the family. But uh, we were living in a country that didn't allow, the country didn't allow us to have that freedom. Uh, as much as we wanted to. So uh, it, um, as a result of being open, I was not uh, never afraid of questioning and uh, opening up about uh, my, my uh, thoughts or things I have. And as a teenager, that got me in a lot of trouble. And uh, I was uh, going to the public uh, junior high and as a, uh, I was actually really fanatic Muslim uh, junior high schooler that I was going to we were actually had once a week uh, uh, weekly Friday uh, Thursday night uh, Thursday uh, prayer so which we had to do publicly all the school would get together and we had to pray and uh, we even had the mullahs coming in in front so to be able to pray for the whole school and so it was we had to do it all and uh, so in the religious classes, I started asking questions and uh, questions that most, I think most teenagers in Iran have, uh, but nobody dares to ask, <laughs> but I was brave enough to ask them, like, why do I need to talk with my God in Arabic? Why do I pray in one direction to God? Does it mean that God, if I turn around and do everything I want to do in that direction. He doesn't see. So I can go ahead and do whatever I want because he only sees me when I'm faced that direction. And so if I face the other direction, I won't, uh, um, I won't be seen by God. Or if, uh, and I, whatever I say in Farsi, I don't have to worry about it because he only speaks Arabic. And uh, so all of those little questions that uh, I was asking my uh, religious class uh, teachers that I got a first warning uh, of the school. And then uh, the second warning of uh, the school, my dad panicked and says, the third warning, they're gonna kick you off the school and no education for you anymore, girl. And they couldn't stop me from uh, being myself. So in order to avoid that not happening, they moved me to private school. And in the private school, which is more open, and we had a lot of uh, uh, group, uh, minority groups in Iran uh, joining uh, private school because they, in the public system, there's a lot of pressure on Islam. So we had a lot of uh, Armenian uh, Christians and Jews and 
kind of so-called Jews, the Persian Jews, because their Jews are not allowed to come, but people who are born in Iran and born Jews. According to Iran, you can keep your faith or whatever that is. You can't just talk about your faith to other, uh, other people. And uh, so I got to know a lot of Christian friends in high school, and uh, they were... Uh, from the Christian background, raising the Christianity. So because of me and asking those questions, I got in a lot of discussion with them. And uh, one of my good friends of mine, which was, uh, she was an Armenian Christian that we spent a lot of uh, breaks and talking about our faith and what things we believe, why we believe. Uh, and so she was telling me about her, uh, her faith and her belief in Christ. And I said to her, you know, girl, stop it. As a girl in Iran, I have a problem to be a half a person because according to the Islamic law, a woman is a half a person of a man. And you are really trying to convince me to be one fourth of a person. And so, so, so seriously, I, let me, I'm trying to solve my halfness to be full and you want me to go backwards to become one fourth. And I just need to, so I'm not interested. I don't want to listen. And so I shot her down and she never talked with me anymore till it was the last eight years of high school. And uh, she just came to me and said, I know you're not interested about faith or anything, uh, but my sister is getting married. Are you coming or not? It's a Christian wedding. And I said, oh yeah, no problem at all. Let's, let's go for the wedding. She said, there's a problem. We're not part of an open church. We are part of a very close Armenian church that only Christians are allowed in the church. Nobody else outside of the church can come in. So you need to be able to prove that you are um, to your Christian identification to be able to prove you're a Christian in order to be able to get into church. And so being a teenager, that was a cool idea to get together with your friends and start faking uh, your Christian ID and uh, making stamps and trying to forge the stamp of the church and try to get in um, to the church. So on that day, uh, when I got to the, um, to the church, um, it was all done in Armenian, which again, uh, uniquely enough, it was a different language than uh, Iranian as well or Farsi as well, but uh, I couldn't understand it, uh, but it was, it had a different atmosphere. First of all, it was a wedding and second of all, being a part of the church and prayers and everything was so different than what I was raised for, with and whatever I believed in. And uh, so um, the, the night I came home, I was restless. I really didn't know uh, uh, what was what happened in my heart there was something that made me wanted to know more about what just happened in the atmosphere what was it there that it, I never felt it anywhere else other than there what was going on in that church service and um, then I opened a closet and the book fell off uh, on that from the closet on my pillow and that book goes back, go, uh, was going back to actually many, many years before that. And uh, one day I was uh, cleaning my dad's car in our garden, which was a huge garden, but because we had no security, we had guard dogs that was guarding our dogs, uh, our gardens and everything. And the dogs were so aggressive that any guests who would come to our house would let us know hours before to be able to put the dogs away because uh, they could be, they, they would have a hard time getting to us. Even with a car, if they would come, dogs would attack the car with damaged cars, uh, not letting anybody come. But uh, I was actually cleaning the, guard, uh, the, uh, the car and I had the guard dogs out because nobody was planning to come. And so I was uh, washing the car and the dogs everywhere. And then there's a little woman can't walk past by me. And I looked at her and says, where did you come from? I mean, how in the world did you make it in one piece <laughs> coming through that door with all those dogs and everything that was coming <laughs> all your way? And she said, I'm searching for this address. Clearly, okay, if you come to our garden and you would walk in, you would know that's not a road because the roads were wild and pavements, nice road in Tehran. And then our road was little tiny dusty roads going to our house. So you would know this is not an actual public road. This is, this is our road. It's our, the road that goes to our garden through our pro property. That's what it was. 
And so we went in uh, on that road uh, with her because I was afraid that the dogs would eat her up on the way back down. So I walked down with her so they, uh, they would not attack her. And so we were talking only about 10 minutes of our walk to our gate that uh, was uh, uh, that she already came. So she started telling me that she was not an Iranian. She had a f- uh, foreign accent, which I had no idea where she was from, but she was telling me she's not Iranian. She got lost. Sorry about that. She was speaking f- uh, perfect Farsi, by the way, with an accent, but perfect Farsi. And then at the door at the gate, when I say bye to her, she just grabbed uh, that booklet out of her purse and handed it over to me and said, this book has changed my life. And I just pray that it will change yours. And she handed over that book to me. And so she risked her life that I would actually could call police on her. I could have arrested her at the moment and there. I wasn't somebody who would do that. I grabbed the book, brought it home, never interested, pushed it through other piles of the books I had and, uh, and never read them till that day that the book fell down. It was a little blue New Testament in Farsi that she was handed over to me. And uh, that night I started reading through them for the first time. And uh, I opened and started with the book of Matthew. So going through gospel by gospel. And I, it was so different that, um, uh, and Goran that I read before. It was a story uh, reading and it was a story of a man. It was actually so real and so uh, so much full of love and everything. And, and as I was reading, and I was getting more interested to read more. So I was keep reading and reading till I actually see the sun coming up and sunrise was happening. So I read the whole night through and uh, till the morning. And the morning I got back to Anna, Anna and I said, Annette, I have read the book. And now I, I actually want to talk with you about it. And she said, oh, which book did you read? I actually wrote, wrote, read a book, uh, book as well recently. Well, this book is actually was written by a master about this law. And are you interested about reading that too? So it's okay, sure, let's read it. So she handed over me that book, which was actually photocopied an A4 page uh, of a book that is not, doesn't have a, li- a license to be published in Iran and cannot be published. It's called 23 Years. And uh, it was written by an Iranian Muslim. And uh, it talks about 20 year, 23 years of Muhammad's being the prophet and compares Quran's verses to the other verses. So it shows the contradictions of Quran's verses between each other and the reason behind them, the history behind them of what happened during the time of Muhammad. And uh, that book had a, a death penalty in Iran. And so I just wanted to read it. So I grabbed the book and brought it home. I was super excited. And as I had the Bible, I had the book and I ran to my cousins to tell them about my new discoveries and reading the books together. And uh, being the only child, I didn't have brothers and sisters. So my cousins were my brothers and sisters. So they were uh, the one that I would go to when I needed to talk with. And being raised in a, a Muslim country, you don't really have um, a very uh, heavy, um, you don't have a really strong relationship with your uh, other uh, friends because you don't trust them. You don't know who you can bring into your family. You always have to have walls between you. So my cousins were my only uh, people that I was close to. So I ran to get to her, to them, to tell them about my new finding. I never got to them. <laughs> Halfway through the street, I was stopped because of having makeup and having my hair shown on the street. And the uh, religious police stopped me and they uh, arrested me. And uh, for the makeup, which I was hoping that I would be the only reason, don't open my purse. As long as you don't open my purse, I'm okay but they started opening and going through my bag and I knew that would be the end of my life and they will never be. Uh, I, I thought I would die. That was the last day of my life. And, uh, and they put me in a detention center a couple of days later uh, while we were waiting for the, um, uh, the court to open up and give us a date in the detention center. Uh, the police uh, man came in with the eyes closed and says, I can't see, I can't see. I said, uh, what, what can you see? And he said, are, are you, are you idiot? <laughs> Get out. 
get out. I am just telling you to get out. And I can't tell you that, but get out. I can't see that you're getting out. So I was like, okay, so I will go out. So I walk out and I saw my dad that he actually bribed the policeman to not see. And he was pretending that there was a pepper in his eyes. And so he was uh, going around like he can't see to show the, make the scene that I walk away. And uh, anyway, we, he told my dad, I will get her out, but there's no way I can get all the documents out, but I just get her out. And uh, so we went into hiding to my grandparents' house and then we decided that we were gonna move to Greece until we figured out what's gonna happen. We didn't know what was the next step, what was going on. And so we moved in Greece and it was not the first time we came to Greece. So we knew everybody at the, at the Greek embassy and we, they knew us and we knew them. So when we went there and asked them for the visa uh, to come and I told them the truth of what was happening. And the guy there gladly gave me the visa and says, just get out fast before they get to you. And uh, so we came to Greece, but I still had a hope that this will find a way to solve it. Because uh, if you, if you're raised in Iran, you know that a lot of things have price. And if you have money, you can move mountains in a lot of places. And so I was hoping that we will find the right person to bribe and the right person to clear this out. But it, uh, that was my hope. And so in two months being in Greece, waiting, and dad was trying to figure out a way for us to get back and try to see what we do. And uh, they confiscated everything we had. They froze our bank accounts and then we, we knew there was nothing for us to use in order to bribe anybody because it was all uh, taken away from us. And uh, it was that moment that was the hardest uh, day of our life, being in a foreign country, in a language we didn't speak. And, uh, and we, we, okay, we had money, but how much would it last you, that money that you brought with you on a trip? Uh, how long will this last till this would end and you won't have enough and uh, you will realize how money how fast it goes when it gets to the point that there is no other uh, income coming into it and uh, so I was really really mad at God I I was uh, getting to the hating point that God I just wanted to know you and instead, see what you have done to my life. This is where you brought me. And what is what good is this? What's uh, good out of this is coming? And uh, why are you doing this to me when I only wanted to know who you are? And I just sincerely wanted to know about you. I, I don't want to know anything about you. I hate you. I don't want anything. I just want to take this life away. And I just don't want to think about anything. I just don't want to think about my past. I don't want to think about future. I just want to move. And my, um, so I went to try to kill myself for the first time in my uncle's house. And, uh, and the first time uh, my cousin was behind the door, knocking the door. And then I realized, oh no, I'm not gonna do this to a, to a two year old toddler uh, that would open the door and would find me uh, in a bathtub uh, with full of blood or other things. I'm not gonna do this to my cousin. And uh, so the next day I make sure that my mom and dad and my cousin will be out for hours. So I will have enough time to be able to finish the job I was gonna finish. And uh, I went to the bathtub ready to cut my wrist. And that was my plan that I will cut it. And so there was be blood. And by the time there will be so much blood loss that they cannot uh, uh, give me back. Uh, it will be gone. And um, I was ready to do this, went to the bathroom and nobody's in the house, I'm alone, nothing's gonna happen, everything planned. As I go and try to grab the, the knife to be able to cut through my wrist, uh, the phone rings and I'm like, now what? So phone's ringing and phone is ringing and phone is ringing and I am ignoring it, I'm not planning to answer it. And uh, then it goes on answering machine as, uh, and it was on speakers that you could hear those, those times that you could hear all your answer, messages uh, record while they're actually talking to you. So it was my cousin talking to me and, uh, and she was keep telling me that uh, I don't know what happened, but I had a bad dream. There was a man told me that if I don't call you now, I will never see you again. 
So can you tell me what's going on? Can you just let me hear your voice? And uh, I was crying by the time uh, she wanted to hear my voice. So I walk out of the bathroom, went and grabbed the phone and I was just crying and I just couldn't stop crying. And uh, she said, well, what, what, what were you planning to do? What was going on? What was happening? I said, uh, you wouldn't, you don't want to know. And, but I just, and she probably figured it out by my cries that, it, and it was, things were happening that she didn't want to know about it. And uh, the next day, that I uh, couldn't cry in front of my parents and I just decided to leave, go for a walk in Athens. Um, took a bus uh, from where we were staying to go downtown Athens. And uh, we were, uh, I was sitting in a bus uh, and praying, talking to God and uh, quietly uh, and just telling him okay now you don't even let me take my life because I know clearly that was you that you didn't let me to take my life the first time my cousin the second time my other cousin and now I am uh, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking what why 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 didn't you let me finish this misery finish this misery that I caused myself and caused my family I can't see this anymore and uh, I just raised my eyes and I saw a cross on the church and I got off the bus and I walked towards the cross for, and I was just draw my attention uh, for some reason. I couldn't stop just then just going through, towards the church, wanted to get to the church and, and back of my mind, I'm fighting with myself. And I'm like, what are you going to go? What are you doing? Uh, it's Greek. It's all going to be Greek. Where are you going? What is your plan? And uh, you won't understand. They don't understand you. What will you do? And as I walk into the church, walk in front of the gate of the church, it had a sign that says the service would be translated to English. And I thought, I actually found the church in Athens that speaks, that has English services. And uh, there was nobody there. So I couldn't, there was a late guy cleaning and says, come back on Sunday, they will be open. So I went back on Sunday and uh, I wanted to know more. And then I started going to the Bible study and the church service. And then I thought, okay, if I can prove Christ and Christianity is wrong, then I can take all my proof, go back to the Iranian embassy and tell them, you got me wrong. I was just proving them wrong. And, uh, and this is all the proof. And see, this, you guys can prove that Christianity is wrong. And uh, so if I just be smart enough and I can find mistakes and faults in this, then I can show everybody that it's wrong. And so I started reading and reading and through the Bible study and I couldn't find wrong in the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. And there is nothing wrong about, uh, about it all. And, uh, but I still didn't want to uh, take the step of believing. I knew that my plan failed. I can't find anything wrong. And uh, um, there's so much wrong in me, but I can't find anything in God's words and in God's plan and, and Jesus Christ himself. There's, there's, they are holy and they're perfect. And there's nothing to be found that it's wrong. And it all made sense. It all made sense that that's what happened and that's what God wants us to do. But I still couldn't believe it. I still couldn't believe what Jesus has done for us. I still couldn't believe believing in his sacrifice and death, burial, and resurrection. I still couldn't do that. And uh, because it wasn't just believing it, it's denying what you believe before of believing it. It's, uh, as a Muslim, I knew I had to deny not only um, all the belief of myself, I had till now, but also all the beliefs of my whole family and my whole ancestors and everything. So I had to just say hey yes everything they believed is wrong and I just found the truth and that was not something humanly possible for me to do and uh, so that night I just sat in on the, in the uh, on our little living room that we were living at that moment and I just said it as honest as possible as a, as a 19 year old girl who would say say it out loud I said to God you know you know, I don't, I'm just running out of excuses and I just can't take that step. I just can't make that decision. It's just too hard for me to do. 
But if you really want me to do it, help me to make it. Help me to make that step. Help me to, to just do that. I, I, I am weak. And I just believe that you will be able to help me make that decision. And uh, so I, I don't know if I was sleeping in my prayer or I actually was still awake and I was praying and with open eyes, I still, everything felt so out of ordinary and not real, but I was in my living room and I was exactly in the same setting that I was sitting when I started praying that I saw a man walking into the living room and he had, his presence was so heavy and it was something that I just wanted to, to cry out and say, don't come closer because you're so heavy, I can't take a breath. Your presence is so heavy that it's heavy on my heart and I can't take a breath. And I said, don't come closer. You're holy and I am a sinner and do not come closer to me. Do not. And I can't stand that uh, anymore. And he just said, Saha, I told you and I tell you again. I am the way in a life and no one comes to the father except through me. And that was it. I knew exactly who I met and I knew exactly what happened at that moment. And that was the moment I gave my life to Jesus. And that's, and I was bowing down on the, on the floor, crying and crying till the morning that I had to a first chance to be able to call the church and tell them that I want to get baptized. So that's how I got to know the Lord about 21 years ago in Athens and, uh, so that was a, a little bit of my story. <laughs> wow. Just wow. I love how when I hear that story, I just think of the scripture. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's it's that, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, you know, that we if we just believe. And he he came not to condemn the world, but to save the world through Jesus. And I love how you you said that there is there's nothing wrong with the love and the grace of Jesus. And and it's that warmth, it's that love and that grace that beckoned you towards uh, towards Jesus. It, and it was something that you hadn't encountered before. It was something that you you up until that point really didn't experience in your culture, didn't experience in your religion. And it was it was that kindness that drew you. It was that love and that grace and that acceptance. And it's that's so definitive of christianity is mm -hmm. is the of of jesus's really you know unconditional acceptance of us when we you know when we when we know him and everything yes. nothing else matters when we when we know jesus mm -hmm. and i just love how that's just so it's just so personified that jesus he 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 went through so many impossible situations to to stop you from making such a tragic decision. He would, he, he did almost the impossible to bring you back from that, from that edge so that he could use, he, he could bring you up, raise you up, train you up, love on you, and then let his love shine through you to the people that you're now serving in Athens. Mm. So, you're working with refugees now. And so fill in some of the gaps with that. How did you, how did you begin to become aware of the refugee crisis and how did God move your heart to become involved in that? Yeah, it's a, it's a part that I forgot to mention. It was one of the reasons I had as an excuse for God not to know him. It was like, okay, you're right, but I'm not going to be the only Iranian who will become Christian. I'm not going to be the only one who will make decisions. And uh, it was before coming to the Lord, uh, I was sitting at the church and those old days, you didn't have wireless headsets. So you, during the, the place that the translations would happen, it was two rows of the church that you could actually plug in your normal headsets and, and mm. you could sit. So all the foreigners were sitting in those two rows of the, the church. And so you knew that whoever was sitting next to you can speak English. Otherwise, they would not be sitting next to you. <laughs> <laughs> they would be sitting where all the Greek speakers are. And so there was a lady just sat next to me. And uh, so you know, after the church service started uh, and finished, and so she looked at me and says, oh, where are you from? So you would ask the foreigner questions, uh, foreigner next to you, where are you from? So I said, I'm from Iran. Where are you from? She's like, oh, I'm from, from America. I'm from Chicago. And uh, so 
and I said, okay, uh, are you visiting? She says, no, 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 no. I'm actually teaching to a lot uh, English to a lot of refugees in Athens, and I have a lot of Iranian new believers in my English class. Do you know any of them? I'm like, no way. I do not know anybody that are Iranian, and they can't be true. I was just like, God, this can't be true. She's she's just playing me because I'm an Iranian and don't know anybody in this country that is a Christian, and she's an American. Knows so many of them. This is just mm-hmm. not right. And uh, so she said, "Oh, come, come. Actually, you're the answer of prayers. I'm leaving very soon." And I was praying for somebody come take over my English class. And I think you'll be perfect for this. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, I, what are you doing? I said, actually, at this moment, not a lot, some odd jobs here and there, but I have a lot of free time, which I, I'd be more than happy to help out somebody if I could. So she said, yes, you speak Farsi and you speak English. That would be perfect if you can teach the Iranians, especially the basic English. And that would be so much easier if you do it than I do it when I don't speak Farsi. So I said, okay, I'll come, I'll come and see. I wasn't so sure if I would actually go back again or not. And so she gave me an address. And so I started coming. And I had no idea about that part of that, Athens. There's a different dark side of Athens, <laughs> but I didn't actually enter uh, as a refugee life till I actually went to the refugee center. As I was walking down at seven o'clock in the night, uh, the, the dodgy part of Athens, trying to get to the center, and I felt like this is actually a scary part of Athens. I never thought about it, and maybe I would have dressed differently if I knew I would be this part of an Athens. And so I walked in. And then at this refugee center that I was entering, there was about a thousands of men or a couple of hundreds of men at that moment standing in lines to get in. And I was the only female among them. Mm-hmm. So there were a couple of hundred of men and the only female among them. And everybody was staring at me. And I thought they were actually going to eat me now with their eyes. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what to do. And I says, what is Anna doing to me? Why am I here? What's going to happen? So I ran upstairs and of course, when they saw that there was a female coming into the door, as dressed as I was, he's like, what are you doing here? I said, I am searching for Anna. So they took me to a room and they showed me Anna and I waited till the feeding was done and all the Muslims left. And then there was an English class that started that was among um, believers that were meeting up at that moment. So I went to the class and sat with them. They were learning English. And as they, as they were learning at the beginning, they started to share their testimony with me. And at the end of the class about their testimony uh, as well. And uh, so that was the excuse was over that I didn't know anybody. So that English class became my first mission. Uh, I continued uh, teaching when Anna left and I uh, continue teaching for years, I think, in that classroom. And I, then I became the coordinator of that class, all the English classes in, in that uh, center. I was working as a volunteer. So I think I was volunteering for about a year at uh, that refugee center that, uh, that my former team leader asked me uh, that what, one of the only thing that is missing to call you a missionary is that to just ask you to become one. And maybe we can uh, help you to become a missionary and help you fundraise and be able to live as a missionary in Athens without uh, working, without, without actually going around and doing uh, second jobs because you're actually working more hours than any of our missionary in Athens do. So I filled in an application for a mission and uh, I have, my application was accepted, of course, because all the missionaries signed on my behalf to be. And uh, the first, Life of a missionary was very hard as a former refugee in Athens to start a missionary because, okay, you have to fundraise. How do you start? Where do you begin? And where would your money come? The whole concept of asking a church or asking a a Christian person to support you for your call and to be on a mission, it was very foreign to me. And it was very hard for me to do as an Iranian. And, And then again, who would I ask? My family member who are all Muslim? or the church that I have is in Greece. So that's all I had. So the church in Greece allowed me to do talk uh, in the evening service about uh, mission and ask uh, to, uh, to see if the church would commit to give to me. And they 
committed to give me 100 euros a month at that moment. And it was not even enough to pay one fifth of my rent. And if the first church is actually my church that I'm going is supporting that much, how much more do I need to go? And I can't travel, I can't go to any other country. So I had to stay in Greece and fundraise from distance in the years of 2002, which mm. was not that much easy to access with internet or Skype or Zoom or anything else at that moment. It was only emails and dial up internet that you could actually dial up at those times. Mm. And um, so we decided that we will pray and then we will write down um, my testimony and we will pray over it. And then we send it out to whoever we feel led to do. And we ask everybody who receives this letter to send it out to whoever they would like that to be sent. So only people on my mailing list that I was sending my first newsletter or my testimony to were all missionaries themselves. And I didn't have anybody else in that mailing list. And I just prayed and I sent it. And they were all my friends who were just at the mission together with us every day. And they all forwarded it to their mailing list, my letter. Mm. And, um, and um, the first letter we got back, uh, actually one of the missionary friends came over and said, as a step of faith, I will be your first supporter. I would like to give you $10 a month, 10 euros a month. So that I will be supporting you 10 euros a month. And I would just hope that you will be able to raise enough to be able to stay as a full-time missionary with, with us. And, uh, and the next day, one of her supporters decided to cut her support down to half and gives me the half after wow. she got my newsletter. And I was like, no, you gave me 10 euros and now you lost $25 as well. So I was like, this is was cruel. So she, she said, so she said, don't worry. And actually it was really interesting because it was only two months that that supporter gave us half of support to each because they got raised and they raised our support to double by the two months uh, both of us received the exact the same amount they committed to her anyway uh, during that uh, fundraising I actually got an, um, my email was forwarded to uh, a lot of people but I think after four months after four months of sending the first email, three months, four months of sending the first email. So I got an email from a Dutch man and that it was forwarded from his uh, father, from his, uh, he got an email from his father and from the father got it from uh, a missionary in Holland. And that missionary got an email from my team leader that also got it from me. So it was forwarded to so many times till he got it. And he wanted to know how he can support me. And how much does, do I need? That was his first question. And I said, you don't ask that question. You just tell me how much God put in your heart to give me. If it's $10, 20 or 30 whatever that is. And we just hope that every people around the world would be enough for me to live by. And uh, God's going to provide uh, the other way. Mm -hmm. And he says, no, I need to know how much would you be able to get up? And I said, I don't really know because uh, I can live with the minimum possible but I have to find a house to rent I have to pay rent and all those things and that comes up as soon as I know I have enough income and uh, he gave me a big amount of money and he just said okay then just let me know when it finishes and uh, that was uh, the first time I got an email and only thing he wanted to know was every month to hear back about the, our, about my missions and what's happening in Athens among refugees and uh, that the letters continued back and forth till the day uh, that we are actually, he's supporting me fully. He's my husband now. And uh, <laughs> I, I support him now. I have the bank cards. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> oh, that's Love it. <laughs> so good. Oh, man. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Wow. Just, just amazing how God just brings things together and just his timing and his just divine orchestration of events. And, uh, of, and I love how, you know, listeners, we have, my wife and I, we have this sign or you know, a picture in our house where it says, it says, you know, where God guides, he provides. And 
Um, I love, I love how, how telling that is in, in your life that where God guides, he provides. And, you know, we all need reminded of that sometimes because, you know, sometimes we just don't see the resources coming in or, um, but when, when God's in it, when we take those steps of faith, when we take those, when we're obedient in that, he will bring it to pass. And I love how your story just so beautifully, um, just illustrates that. Wow. And so you and your husband have come to, you know, f- through all these emails and through the support and, and not having even met each other at that point, y- you, you got married and now you, you live in Athens and you, you serve together and you work with refugees and, and your, your lives are joined together, serving refugees, serving Jesus. And for, for those of us who, who don't understand sort of the refugee crisis, can you kind of help us kind of get into perspective the amount of refugees who are in transition, who are in camps and, and how many refugees are, you know, are these camps made for, how many are living there? And can you tell us kind of some of that daily life of, of a refugee that you and your husband work with now? Yeah, it's uh, okay. First of all, a lot of people think that a refugee crisis started in 2015, and I need to say, correction, it didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, the refugee's life started way before that. Refugee journeys coming many years ago. I came as a refugee in the year 2000, and there were so many of the Iranian refugees or population at the moment that I came in, and there were so many more. But 2015, the numbers became drastically a lot and uh, draw uh, attentions of all the media mm-hmm. towards it. So we have had years, um, all these years, we had a lot of refugees. I think in 2003, 2004, we were feeding about a thousand refugee a day. Mm-hmm. And I remember the day of our feeding ministry that we were boiling 2000 eggs daily to be able wow. to feed uh, refugees. And you don't want to know how it smells when you boil 2,000 eggs <laughs> at the same. And, uh, but it was hard those days that we had to boil them every day. And because that was the only thing we could boil gradually and let them cool down. And then we would be able to feed the kids, feed, feed the refugees the next day for breakfast. Two eggs, tomato, and uh, Arabic bread or pita. And um, that's how we did it back then, but uh, they were always a, a lot of refugees. The ethnicity and the, where they came from changed from time to time. In 2015, it became all of a sudden from all nations, from everywhere, they all came at the same time. It's kind of like it opened up highway. It was, they were coming uh, one at a time or two at a time. Uh, but then at 2015, they were just masses of them coming and uh, they were, uh, all uh, borders were open. People were coming by boats through the islands and they were, uh, it was just all of a sudden too many of them. And then um, it was uh, too many of them to handle. At 2015, still the roads to other European countries were open. So they were coming, they were staying in Athens for a few days, three, four days, and they would leave and go for the other final destinations in Germany, uh, Holland, Finland, and other countries. But soon enough, they, all those countries filled up their capacity and they all close, could close their borders. But Greece can never close their borders. What are you going to do when you have so many little islands close to Turkey that is outside of European Union? Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? It's a couple of hours of uh, swimming and you come from Turkey to Athens and uh, you can just... Um, we, we had a refugee who actually swam it through, wow. came from Turkey oh and swam all the way to an island, to Lesbos. And uh, so it's, it's so, uh, um, so close. And so in the, in the night, what are you going to do? Are you going to drown them halfway through the sea? And they say you're passing the borders because the borders are halfway through the sea. There is no way you can actually control those borders. But we are talking about masses of people, uh, refugees. I, uh, we are in downtown, we're in Athens. Where we are, we are actually having four major uh, refugee camps around us. Malakasa, that has a capacity of a house about 1,500, but there are about 5,000 refugees living in there. And then we have Escaramangas that they have, uh, they are just closing it down. That's our new crisis. That uh, there are about 6,000 refugees uh, are staying there. And there's the Scristo, that's also a couple thousand refugees there. 
and Elona's couple of thousands of refugees. And then we have houses throughout the city that we have refugees are settled in. And then we have masses of refugees arriving every day as well on our streets of Athens that they're not, they're unregistered refugees and they're refugees that are not in the system yet, but they are coming in. And, uh, and then we're in mainland, <laughs> I mean, on the Lesbos, as you've heard the stories, Moria just got in fire with many thousands of thousands of refugees. And then now they moved them into the tents and the, they had the whole winter just living in tents and in bad conditions and in muds and, uh, and so many, so cold and so uh, wet uh, at the camps. And so that's that's been the life of the refugees from 2015. They are the number. They keep building new camps, but it's never enough to feed them uh, to house people because there are so many of them coming every day again. And um, so, and then now they are kind of stuck in Athens. They can't go to another countries. Uh, it's very hard for them to pass the borders to be able to travel to others. And if they do, they fall under a Dublin law, which means the first European country that they arrive, uh, that's, uh, that's responsible for them to take care of them, which is Greece. So they will never be able to have them. And now actually, uh, as of a new government is in place in Greece now, the government is really not for refugees, they're actually anti-refugees and they're trying to pass new laws after laws to making life of refugees harder and harder, uh, and which even uh, makes it harder for our refugee friends to make a life. We just had an announcement that um, we all the refugees that arrived from 2015 on, they all get about, the first adult gets 150 euros of a cash card to live the whole month with. And the wife gets 140 euros and the child gets 50 uh, euros. And uh, they have to be able to get by every month with that, which for now, it, it was barely enough, the cash cards, but they just announced uh, that they are gonna stop the cash cards. And uh, they are, uh, for whoever is not inside the camps. So if people who are staying in the house or anything, they are just gonna lose it. They're not gonna be able to get the cash cards. Wow. Hmm. Where, where exactly are the refugees coming from? Can you help us understand uh, what regions and what countries are they coming from specifically? There are a lot of Syrians at this moment that are coming, a lot of Afghans. And there's also a lot of uh, Africans are arriving, uh, Moroccans, Kenyans, and uh, Iranians, and uh, so the Iraqis, uh, that those are the refugees that we are getting these days. Wow, wow. And so the Greek government isn't really helping them as much. They've, they've done some, and the UN, I think, is, is also helping. But as I understand it, a lot of what they're encountering is really the people that are helping them are the Christians, people like you. And that is, they're, they're encountering the love and the grace mm -hmm. of Jesus. And that was part of your story, the, the, that warmth of love and grace that just beckoned you towards Jesus. And that's what they're encountering. Can you talk to us about that? And just how are, how, just tell us a little bit more about that process. How are they encountering Jesus there in Athens? Yeah, as uh, there are a lot of NGOs at this moment that are meeting refugees need, but majority of them are uh, seen as a project and as a thing. They are just, nobody gives them a love and a care. Nobody sees them as a person. Nobody cares that, uh, that much about them. They just, uh, they actually be seen as annoyance and trying to get off my workload. You are the workload in front of me and I want you out of my sight. That's how the NGOs are actually working with the refugees are doing. Uh, but with us and the Christian organizations, so we just see them as God sees them. We see them that they, God has created them. And we actually don't see them as a crisis. We see them as opportunities. We see that God has opened up a road for them to get to Greece. And we can actually share Christ with them without actually risking our life. Because if you would go to the country they are from, that they'd never heard the gospel. If we would go there, we would risk our life to be able to share the Christ. If they, if I would be the woman who went to Iran to give me that Bible in my hands 21 years ago, I would have been risking my life. But now I can actually share Christ every day with every single Muslim refugee in front of me. And I don't have to be afraid 
that if I get out of my own mission ministry center, that I will be killed on the street or I might never see my family again. I'm not risking my life uh, for sharing Christ. So it's a great opportunity for all of us to be able to be the witness and to be able to share what Jesus has done for them without being afraid of our life. And, and, and then I think, and so much, uh, so much has come. And so many of people actually come through the ministry and they see the difference and they actually come up and ask them the question, why are you guys different? What is the difference about this? And it opens up such a door to be able to share about the gospels and the hope we have, the love we have, the God, the God of Christ that has changed all of our life and what Jesus has done for them. And what they only have to do is believe in him and he will forgive them from all their sins. And, and that, that's unconditional love and unconditional forgiveness that is so foreign to somebody who comes from the Muslim background. And, um, what we really realized in the past few years that um, we don't have to do the groundwork. Before we had to do the groundwork, we had to make sure the opportunity would come to be able to open up to tell them the, about Christ. Whenever we told them about Christ, the relationship was cut because they didn't want to hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, nowadays, they don't, you don't need to do the groundwork. You can just share bluntly as you want with the Christ. They are open. They actually come thirsty and hungry to listen and a lot of them know that islam is not an answer anymore they are running away from all those wars all those miseries that is islam has caused them they know this was not an answer this is not what they should be believing in they have already stopped believing islam and they are searching for the true god who who is god and they're coming with that hunger in their heart and we have an amazing opportunity to be able to be the first uh, witness to them and tell them about what God has done for them. And uh, so it's uh, it's a family that we will, uh, that I think the love and the familyness and the group we have, the feel of a family that mm. exists in, that we see them as a part of, uh, they are valuable, that we care for them, we love them. And so that's uh, that's a difference. But I think we see so many of them coming to the alert in the past few years. And uh, it's just miraculously to know uh, that they're so hungry and and so easy for us that we, many years ago, we had to work so hard to share Christ and see somebody saved and that we can actually see them daily. Wow. I just wanna go back to that statement you said, um, several minutes ago, you know, we don't see it as a crisis, but an opportunity. That's just such an awesome way to see it. It's so kingdom focused and just so encouraging and just creates a good paradigm, a good paradigm shift, you know, and just like, wow, what a great opportunity. Like it's a safe way to share Christ eternal hope with people Mm-hmm. in a way that would have never been mm-hmm. possible before. I just so appreciate you sharing that and just stating that so well. Um, and just wondered, you know, would you mind sharing maybe a couple stories or testimonies of people who've come to know Jesus that you've encountered um, just to, you know, show, you know, their, just the, that hunger and thirst that you just mentioned, you know, how have you seen the countenance change and, um just the results of them coming to know Jesus and, you know, how their life was and how they are now. Yeah, we, we actually, one of the things we have seen is that people coming to know the Lord and they become part of our team. So we have other refugees working alongside us and they share Christ with the others. I see them as a, as, as our team and we have mm. missionaries uh, refugee missionaries among ourselves. And that's, so that's what we are trying to uh, equipped all all of our refugee brothers and sister to be this mission and do the do the mission in this city and mm-hmm. they have such an amazing opportunities and i know that somebody from our uh, farsi church uh, they started an effort of going every saturday now to the park uh, openly sharing gospels and they've had such an amazing discu- encourage uh, discussions with afghans and iranians on the park about what christ has done for them mm-hmm. as well but um there are a lot of people who it's, it's, it's just hard to choose between who we say or which stories we actually share from sure. people who came to the Lord. But even little opportunities that God brings us, sometimes uh, 
we um, we don't we actually preach the gospel uh, and get it yeah, without uh, um, working so hard on them without knowing that you're actually getting there. You know, you're doing something you're supposed to do at your at your mission, and then you're hoping that you will get to the part that you would actually share the gospel. But then it's so easy when it comes to that point, which. It, it happened recently to us was um, we had an Afghan man who uh, broke his uh, collarbone uh, by an accident from the motorbike. And um, uh, we, um, it was, it came to our attention. We tried to get them in a public hospital to get it operated on. If he would never get up, uh, he wouldn't operate on his shoulder. He will never be able to move his arm and work from that arm, which was mm. his main, main hands and main arm. And uh, he was actually Tyler. And so he had a heavy work and heavy load of tiles he has to carry. And uh, so we, uh, we decided that we would, like, uh, we would like to pay for his surgery. And our local uh, Greek volunteers doctor who offered to give their time for free and do the surgery and negotiate with the hospital to give us an amazing deal as a mission to be able to do the operation in a private hospital and pay with a little amount of money. And then we had other generous donors that paid towards this uh, surgery and we managed to pay for it, to get it done. It all happened miraculously in, I mean, in um, 48 hours from the moment wow. we heard to start till the moments that we actually could say yes to the operation. It was, wow. took us 48 hours and we had enough money for the surgery. We had a doctor in place. We had a surgery room book. And uh, anyway, we, I didn't know the guy. I just knew of him. And uh, somebody from uh, who are volunteers with our help with One Heart uh, knew about him. So he told us about him. That, Please, we, can we do something about him? Otherwise, he will never be able to work. And uh, so we took a step and we did the surgery. And I just, yesterday, we had an amazing uh, conversation uh, with Abbas' fanatic friend. Uh, he, he was a believer, the guy who we did the shoulder surgery from, but he had one fanatic Muslims that he was trying to reach Christ with him for over years and years. years. He tried so often, so hard. And this friend was never interested, was never interested to hear the gospel, never interested about doing it. But as the day that the surgery happened on Abba's shoulder, he is the one coming and asking questions. Mm-hmm. Why would they do that? Why? Why would why would they why would they actually do this? A brother would never do for a brother like this. A sister would never do this for a sister. Why what is the difference about them? And so Hadi had an amazing time to be able to share Christ with this guy. And uh, it's just an encouraging how God opens up. And now we have a man that we never thought he would be interested and a man that we never thought that his life could actually ever be changed. Now he's so hungry for Christ because of miraculously what God has done, providing the surgery, providing the doctor and all of it together make a role uh, for this to happen. We have also like uh, people uh, um, coming to know the Lord because uh, they see changes in their brothers and sisters that they become, like we, we have two Iranians that they come to know the Lord and after a while they see changes in those uh, two Iranians and they share the gospel with the other. So it's like a starting a movement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One person shares and the other, and it's, it's amazing to see how God is using that. And that even like during the lockdown, a lot of the ministries and a lot of uh, NGOs had to shut down. Oh, we were going on strong and the gospel was still preaching. And then, then uh, our ministry was going on because it was by word of mouth and people would share with the others. And we had a um, door-to-door step of missions that we did like grocery giveaway at doorsteps. And uh, we had um, clinics and also our, our, um, our Iranian uh, volunteers were sharing where they live with the others uh, about Christ and what God has done for them. So even even during the lockdown, we saw God moving and uh, God touching the refugees' life in this hard time. That's so awesome. I I just yeah. thank you so much for sharing that. I just love hearing yeah. that. It's so encouraging and just, you know, through relationship, there's just that multiplier effect of, you know, that you guys are also able to disciple new believers who then go out 
and you can exactly you know god you know that's how god's kingdom works is just you know we don't do it on our like each of us has our part but we all do it together as the church and that's just amazing so yeah i love that that's such a good example of kind of that discipleship principle that you would bring them in and share christ with them and they would they would accept christ but then they would begin to to work with you mm-hmm. and you know do it it's it's, it's kind of like jesus you know come do as i do essentially you know was that an, it was was that call to them and it, it essentially yeah. for you guys come love on other people as we with us and and share the love and and in so doing you're you're opening doors for other people to to that you wouldn't even know um or would you, you wouldn't even expect they come in and, um, and God, you find out that God has been working. And, you know, for us, you know, as Americans, it, and not all of the listeners are Americans, but, you know, there's, there's a, a, there's a mindset for a lot of us that, you know, Muslims, man, they just don't want to hear the gospel. They don't want, I shouldn't share it to get, you know, and we've got to get past that because there's just like in your story, God is working behind the scenes and there's no telling what God has been doing in their lives, what God has been doing in their heart. And it's just waiting for that, that, that right opportunity. You know, we see this in the Bible that some, some, some plant, some water and some harvest, right? And you don't know what part of that process you are. You could be the planter, you could be the water, you could be the person that actually brings the person in. You don't know. And that's why we have to be faithful and we have to do what God tells us to do right then. And, you know, you need to, and you need to be clear about that who you are and what you believe with them. Otherwise, how mm-hmm. would, in the world would they know you're different? How would they know that you're not, you're a Christian if mm-hmm. you don't share? If you are a, a planter or you're a water or the one you're harvesting, doesn't matter where you are. Mm-hmm. If you do, if you don't share, how would they know uh, if you're a Christian? How would they know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I and the only thing I would add to that is that in so many ways, and you've you've said, shared this with your example, man, they know you're Christians by your love, and in so many ways too. That, but they don't know what it exactly is. They see something different. They see that you're loving on people, and how could you love on people? How could you help people the way that you do? How could you do this so sacrificially? And when you tell them, they say, "Oh, I got it. I it, I want to know that same Jesus because if." if he'll do that for, for somebody else, wow, he, he will love me too. He'll forgive me of my past too. And I just think that that's such a great example. I love how you, you and the ministry are just basically loving on people, meeting needs. And so many times we, we overcomplicate ministry, don't we? We over, we, we kind of call this ministry, we call missionary work. We call, you know, just outreach, whatever we want to call it. We have it so many different names for it but we complicate it. And it really, what it is, is that they'll know, they'll know you're different by your love. Just go and meet a need, go and help somebody and what God shows you. And God will be faithful to his word. He will bring things to pass. He, you know, but our, our job is obedience and God's job is God's, God's job is the outcome really essentially. Exactly. It's he's the one who will finish the job is the job of the Holy Spirit to convince mm-hmm. the heart. It's just us do our part and just mm-hmm. uh, be his hand and feet and uh, do what we yes. know what to do. <laughs> do where you are and do it where you are at. Uh, start there. If you don't start small, you will never start. Mm-hmm. Start with what you can. I started with English classes and now I am leading a ministry, <laughs> leading a whole NGO in Athens. But I started with just teaching the English class. That's all I knew. That's how you start. Whatever you know, start there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you know, kind of in conclusion here, what do you say to that listener who's on the fence, who's, you know, God's put something on their heart. They're kind of wondering how to take that initial step and put their foot in the water. What would you say to that listener that wants to step out into what God has for them, but is still kind of a little bit uncertain and not sure that they should take that risk? The thing is, if you never take a risk, you will never see God doing miracles. It's only through those risks that God's gonna fulfill them. You need to take, you need to step out of that boat. And even the, despite of the storms around you, you need to be able to take that step of faith coming out of a boat and trusting that God will help you to walk on waters. Otherwise you would always be small, stuck in that little boat that you, this is your life and you will never be able to see God, God at work. He already began the work. He already started the mission. He already did uh, planted the seeds of those people. He already prepared their hearts. He already put, set them at the journeys that they are to get to you. 
And so it's just, you don't have to be worried because God has you to do your part and the rest is in his hands. There's nothing that you can do wrong that is too big for God to change it. So just, just do it as I ask you to do. So good. The, the verse, yeah, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And, you know, it's just, it's just that obedience. You know, Sahar, your, your stories are so inspirational and, and it's just amazing what God is, you know, doing in you and through you. And we know that that's your heart. You know, it's, it's not you, it's not anything. It's, it's, it's God using a willing vessel and using yeah. a willing family and using a willing entity like one heart to meet practical needs uh, there in Athens, Greece. How can people find out more about you? Is there a website people can go to? Is there an email? Do you, are, are you on social media? How can people find more uh, about your ministry and how you are blessing uh, refugees there in Athens? Yeah, they can go to our website. It's oneheart.gr, www.oneheart.gr. And then and there's also emails. If anybody was interested to listen, to hear more about us, we will usually send monthly newsletters and they could sign up on our newsletter. Send us an email and we will make sure that you will get more, uh, get in our update, the list, our prayer request and all of our testimonies. And we will be sharing testimonies monthly of things that God has done through one heart. And um, so if you just send the email that is on the website and then we'll make sure that you will be on the mailing list as well. Awesome. So good. Such a good ministry. I've personally uh, seen uh, firsthand the ministry that Sahar and, and One Heart is doing. And it, it's just, it's, I've seen, I've looked in the eyes of refugees and it just seen uh, just that deep respect that they have, that deep love and, and thankfulness that they have for Sahar. So I can personally vouch that this ministry is, is making a huge impact there uh, in the lives of refugees. So uh, Sahar, thank you so much for your time. Thank mm -hmm. you for inspiring us with what God is doing uh, in you and through you. And we just speak blessings over all that Absolutely. you put your hand to there in Athens. Thank you guys. It was nice to chat with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>